You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. The heads of the fathers' houses, of the clan of the people of Gilead, the son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of the people of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the chiefs, the heads of the fathers' houses, of the people of Israel. They said, Yahweh commanded my Lord to give the land for inheritance by lot to the people of Israel, and my Lord was commanded by Yahweh to give the inheritance of Zelophehad our brother to his daughters. But if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the people of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So it will be taken away from the lot of our inheritance. And when the jubilee of the people of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry, and their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of the tribes of our fathers. And Moses commanded the people of Israel, according to the word of Yahweh, saying, The tribe of the people of Joseph is right. This is what Yahweh commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whom they think best. Only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father, so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to his own inheritance. The daughters of Zelophehad did as Yahweh commanded Moses. For Maha, Tirzah, Hogla, Milka, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married to sons of their father's brothers. They were married into the clans of the people of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's clan. These are the commandments and the rules that Yahweh commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 648 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, June 28th, 2023. That was a reading of Numbers 36, not a long chapter. Not a long chapter, but there are some real gems in there that are very thought-provoking, that are very relevant, I would say, for getting the mind of God, and for correcting some error. Some error in the way that we think about these things that needs to be corrected. And it's not to say that all of the error 
that we might have about these kinds of matters is, you know, coming from bad intentions. It's not to say that every time we make a mistake in our thinking on these things or we're confused or we're unsure how it should go, that that's coming from a place of selfishness or sinfulness. Sometimes error is just error. Sometimes we just don't know what we don't know. And even in the context of the passage, you have the introduction of the question. You have some loose ends that need to be tied up as to, okay, well, how is this going to work in such and such a circumstance? There's a question about things that have not been addressed to this point, which it seems in good faith one could ask and resolve without any kind of casting of aspersions. And I think that is important to note. I think that's important to note. You have the heads of fathers' houses. So these are patriarchs. That's another way to put it. They are not just men, not just people, right? Not just human beings in a general sense. No, no, there is no radical egalitarianism here. In fact, I would say radical egalitarianism is born of rebellion, where we say we don't want there to be any distinction at all between those who are in authority and those who are under authority. That is not of God. God is a God of order. The Most High God has a plan and a purpose and intentions for how he has put people in relation to one another. He puts people in positions of authority not just in the civil sphere, not just in the church, also in the home, also in the family. Also, as you scale up in the context of Israel, not just over individual families, but also over extended families and over tribes, over clans within tribes, but within the nation you have the 12 tribes, and within each of the 12 tribes you have clans that are descended from the sons of the sons of Jacob. And here are the heads of clans coming to Moses and asking a follow-up question, wanting some clarification. Okay, remember a while back we talked about Zelophehad and how he had died in the wilderness, not because he was part of Korah's rebellion, but he died for his own sin. It's not remarked on. It's not told to us. Apparently, we didn't need to know, but it happened. Korah's rebellion and God striking dead those who conspired together to oppose not just Moses and Aaron, but to oppose God himself, ultimately. They were not an isolated incident. God did this at other times, and we don't read about it in the biblical text, but that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Here we get something of a follow-up to what was addressed when the daughters of Zelophehad came forward and said, why should our father's line have no inheritance in the promised land? Can we have our father's portion divided among us? Because he didn't have any sons. Now, this is not a circumstance that I would be familiar with because by God's grace, I have seven sons. My wife, Lauren, and I have seven sons with an eighth on the way. An eighth we expect to be born on my birthday in November this year. We have one daughter, but how would it be if we had 
only daughters. And how would it be if we lived in a country where the father passes down his property to his sons, just like he passes down his Y chromosome, just like he passes down his last name, and his sons are going to carry forward his name and his genetic information, his Y chromosome, so also his sons will inherit his property and pass it on to their sons after them. How would it be if we only had daughters and we had no sons to inherit? Well, we would have something of a guiding principle here as to the mind of God, as to what is fair, what is just, what is reasonable. This is not radical egalitarianism. This is kind of a contingency plan, so to speak. If there are no sons, if there are no men to inherit, well then, the property should pass to the daughters. The property should pass to the daughters. Now, plenty of people have upended this tradition, I would say, thanks to radical egalitarianism, dissolving the distinction between sons and daughters. But perhaps it would be better if we went back to fathers passed down to their sons, who in turn passed down to their sons. And if we did, if we went back to that being the more traditional view, what would we do? Would we say if a man has no sons, he just doesn't pass on his property? Not when we have the law of God to refer to. And even in the case where you pass it on to your daughters, if you're in this particular context where you've got the year of Jubilee, you've got the various tribes having their own territories within the broader nation of Israel that has not yet even come to pass, but they're already being given instructions on how they're going to order themselves, where they're going to put everybody. There's going to be casting of lots, but then there are men who are overseeing the administration. They're facilitating. They're going to be giving instructions and making sure that it's all done in order. The distribution proceeds apace as it is supposed to. Here we have the heads of clans saying, but wait a second, this is going to create problems when these young women get married, their husbands' clans, their husbands' tribes are going to get some of the land that should properly remain as a part of our clan or our tribe. And what's interesting is what would be perhaps the arbitrary tendency in our day would be to say, so what? Don't be so wrapped up in things. Don't care so much about things. You know, put the relationship first. Let that sort itself out. Don't worry about it. That's not the response from either Moses or God. The response from Moses, and by extension, the response from God, is they should marry within their own tribe. Problem solved. Now, you and I, here too, will raise an objection because we'll say, well, wait a second, aren't you going to have some problems with inbreeding after a fashion? Well, isn't that taboo for them to be marrying within their own tribe if they're going to be marrying cousins? Like, how closely related are these cousins? Remember, again, 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 God sets the standard. We don't come to the biblical text with a standard and then judge God. We should be coming to the text with questions, and we should be the ones 
being transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable. That includes these passages. And if God is saying this is the way you handle that, this is the way to deal with this, then that's what it is. And there's nothing untoward about it. It's not gross. It's not inappropriate. It's not backwards. It's not hickish. But, you know, I'll draw your attention back to the song I played for our intro in this episode. Take Me for Longing by Allison Krauss and Union Station. A beautiful ditty. Bluegrass, very country. But pretentious people would say that music is lowbrow, perhaps. That music is hillbilly music. And I think on that point, it's helpful to go back in history a little bit. I'll refer you to Colin Woodard's American Nations, as well as plenty of other books. How the Scots Invented the Modern World would also tell you about it. Born Fighting would also tell you about it. Scotland, a history from earliest times would also tell you about it. Lots of books can give you the backstory here, but essentially what you had in the colonies that eventually made up the South in the United States, or that made up, by and large, the Confederacy during the Civil War. The colonies were populated chiefly by two kinds of European immigrants early on, establishing the culture. And in in due time, in the course of events, building out a musical legacy that we now identify as bluegrass or country or gospel. And a lot of rock and roll actually comes out of that tradition. But bluegrass was the music of the people who lived in the mountains, the borderlanders, the highlanders who had emigrated to the colonies from Scotland after being cleared out in many cases, pushed out, driven out by the social engineering reforms of King James VI and I. King James VI of Scotland, King James I of England, same person. That guy wanted to reform Scotland along certain lines. And when I say that, I don't mean, first and foremost, he wanted to reform Scotland Religiously, theologically, first and foremost, first and foremost, he wanted to reform Scotland economically and culturally. And the Highlanders, the Highland clans, he wanted to bring into a parody and he wanted to drive out the riffraff. And to his way of thinking, that meant driving out the Gales. And so the Gales, the Gaelic Scots, the Gaelic clans in the Highlands because they were regarded as somewhat more barbarous or backwards. And a lot of that, you could argue, had to do with long-standing, very ancient biases of those peoples south of Hadrian's Wall who had intermarried with Roman conquerors and mixed their culture, forming what we now think of as English culture. And those to the north of Hadrian's Wall, who were, for a long time, and going way back, able to, if not always repulse immediately an invasion from the south, they were able to give all kinds of trouble to invading armies, 
whether they were English armies or before the English, whether they were Roman armies. So those north of the wall were Picts in ancient times. They were Gaels. They were very Celtic. In due time, they came to be known as the Scots. And the Scots were this blend of Celtic, Irish, Pictish, eventually Norse men, wild men in the north, who very vigorously, very energetically maintained their independence. Maintained their independence over and against challenges from the south, also over and against challenges from their neighbors in Scotland. And so the clans would ally themselves with one another, or they would have blood feuds longstanding against one another, as the case may be, but they had their territories. And what's interesting is before the Highland clearances, as they're known, you had these clan chiefs thinking of themselves as patriarchs over their clans in a very biblical fashion, actually, very reminiscent, very similar to what we're reading about here in Numbers 36. And then part of what King James sixth and first wanted to do in reforming Scotland was get these clan chiefs to stop thinking of themselves as patriarchs, get them to think more and more of themselves as landlords, get them to think of the people renting the lands of the clans as tenants, not so much as members of the clan, as family, but as renters. And as renters, if you're not keeping up the property or if you're not paying the rents that are due, well, you're going to get an eviction notice. You're going to get kicked off. You're going to get forced out. And so what happened was you had a whole lot of Scots, men, women, and children who were brutalized in Scotland during this time. You had a whole lot of upset in the culture of the clan chiefs. And in the lowlands, you had highland young men being brought in and then taught lowland ways, required to live in a certain expensive condition in Edinburgh, and thereby what was affected, what was intended was a homogenization of Scottish culture. But what actually happened as well is that those who weren't in favor of this, who objected, who criticized it, who resisted it, who would fight it, they were forced out very brutally in many cases. They were forced out and where did they go next? They went to Ulster County in Northern Ireland. And then when that became untenable, they went to the colonies in North America. They went in many cases to the colonies that eventually made up the United States of America. As a matter of fact, Many historians would credit that migration from Scotland by way of Ireland to the colonies with the War for Independence, which we're just about to celebrate this next week. Next Tuesday, we're going to be celebrating the 4th of July here in the United States of America. You arguably would not, according to many historians I've read, you would not have had the 4th of July. You would not have had the American War for Independence, without the Scots-Irish, as they're known, without those Scottish immigrants. Why is that? Because they came to the colonies and they maintained that insistence on independence. Don't 
tread on me is a very Scots idea. This I'll defend is what I'm looking at right now on the family crest for Macfarlane. This I'll defend is the clan motto. Very Scots. Very like a Scot to say something like that. But then let's go back, lest we go too far afield here from Numbers 36. Let's take note that you have clans here. We're not familiar with clans, but they had clans. And those clans belonged to tribes, and those tribes belonged to the nation. And you might say, if you have a modern bias, why are these heads of fathers' houses, of the clans of the people, of this or that people, why are they bringing this objection or this concern to Moses? It's none of their business. And in a certain sense, actually, that's true, as God himself tells the people of Israel through Moses, let these young women marry who they think best. So if you'll remember, if you've been listening to this podcast for some time, quite some time ago, maybe a year or more ago, I talked through quite a lot of a sermon by Paul Washer about marriage. And I raised some significant objections, as I see them, to what he was laying out about how it should be. A young man is worthless until the older men in the church recognize him and give him worth after a fashion. And right up until he has proven himself to them, he is barred from getting married. And so Paul Washer would say, if a young woman in the church is unmarried and a young man in the church wants to marry that young woman, a young man in the church, even if the young woman doesn't have a father, right? Maybe she grew up without a father or her father has passed on or he's not a believer or he was never there to begin with. A young woman in the church should have to go and get permission from the elders. And the young man should have to go and ask permission of the elders of the church before he marries a young woman. If she doesn't have a father in the picture, well, then the elders of the church assume the responsibility of being fathers or One man in particular in the church might have, in some sense, adopted this young woman in the church as a kind of spiritual father, and the young man should have to go and ask this man in the church who is older for permission and a blessing. And if the man says no, well, then that's what it is. But that's not what we find in Numbers 36. I think Paul Washer is wrong on that. I think that's arbitrary. I think that's trying to be severe. I think that is heavy-handed. I think it's unreasonable. I don't find that in the biblical text. That might be his opinion, and I think his opinion is, quite frankly, going to cause more trouble for young people than it delivers in the way of benefit to those who are older. I think it's somewhat self-serving and hubristic and arrogant and severe, as though being severe means you're being more disciplined. And I disagree with that. I disagree strongly, and I object strenuously to that line of reasoning. The idea is not to be severe. The idea is not to be harsh. The idea is not to be on a power trip. The idea is for us to love one another because we love God with everything that we have. That's the big idea. And so what God has permitted, we should permit. What God has prohibited, we should prohibit. We should be asking the question, if all things are lawful, what all things are beneficial? And let's encourage those things. And let's advise rather than mandate 
wherever possible. Maximize liberty because we're free indeed if the Son has set us free. But here, note, their father, the daughters of Zelophehad, have no father. Their father has died. He died in the wilderness. In fact, he died, it would seem, because he sinned in some way and God struck him dead. Perhaps he died in the wilderness because he joined in with the many in opposing Joshua and Caleb when they brought back the good report from spying out the land of Canaan. We don't know. We don't know. And in some sense, it doesn't matter. We don't need to know because God doesn't tell us that in this text. It's not relevant. It's not pertinent. Don't get distracted from what we are told in this case and miss what's here. Let them marry whom they think best. Their father's not in the picture, and so they have to make a decision. They have to make a decision based on what they think is best, not based on what some assertive, ambitious, ostentatious, older man in proximity thinks best. No, let them marry whom they think best, but do place this limitation. In the interest of preventing certain unnecessary tension and conflict down the road for the broader community, for the larger clan and tribe and nation of Israel, they can only marry within their clan, within the clan of the tribe of their father, more to the point. So what we're not setting up is most people are going to go based off of the tribe of their father, but these young ladies, they're going to go off the tribe of their mother. No, that's not what's set up. That is not the prescription. It's still going to be based on the tribe of their father, and they will have a husband who is essentially a cousin. And then that way, the property stays in the family. It stays in the clan. It stays in the tribe. And this is interesting. When you think about it in relation to the push for globalism in our day, globalism odd to pair with egalitarianism, but I think that's what you get is when nothing belongs to anyone, everything belongs to everyone. These two are somewhat redundant sayings. Globalism, being a global citizen, is nonsense. This is a newfangled idea. It's actually really at root a way of saying you just don't have a country of your own because some very wealthy, ambitious, ostentatious people have decided to try and take over the world. Sucks to be you right? They get the world and then you get to live in it. It's their world. You're just living in it is their idea. But that's not an idea that we get from God. Even in the new heavens and the new earth, you have a recognition that those gathered around the throne of the lamb are from every tribe, tongue, and nation, which is to say it's still remembered. They don't cease to be from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. In the case of Numbers 36 here, there's nothing at odds about these young ladies having had a father and also being from a tribe and also being from the nation and the people of Israel. All of these things can be true at the same time, that they're daughters of Zelophehad, that they are of the clan that they're of, that they're of the tribe that they're of, and that they're of the nation that they are. All of these things are true at the same time. And actually, interestingly, it's important for the sake of order that they would keep 
what belongs to their tribe belonging to their tribe. They would keep what belongs to their clan belonging to their clan. It's important. And I think we know that instinctively. It has to be drilled out of us by the corporate news media. It has to be drilled out of us by brainwashing in the public education system. It has to be drilled out of us in popular culture. But we would know it intuitively that this is correct. This is right. This is proper. This is from God. It's important that people belong somewhere. It's not just that the land belongs to the people. It's that these people belong here in this place. That's significant. And it's not just significant in the moment. And then you say, well, we'll let future generations figure it out for themselves. Whatever they want to do, it's whatever. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Don't worry about it. That's not what God says. That's not what Moses says because that's not what God says. No, no. You should be thinking about what are the long-term generational implications down the road. It's not going to be our problem decades from now, but let's deal with it now because an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That should be our attitude as well. Now, the social engineers, the megalomaniacs, they would say something very similar, but when it's godless and it's arbitrary, they think they know best. They adopt something like the divine right of kings approach to making decisions with regards to these things. Well, then what do they do when they find a group of people that are resisting them, opposing them, telling them no, standing up to them? What do they do? They try and enact the spoil system. Take from their political enemies and those they regard as riffraff, give to those who are willing to kiss the ring. It's funny how we suppose what happened in the British Isles a few hundred years ago, 400, 500 years ago. We think all of that is totally different than what we're dealing with today. No, no, it's the same thing. They wore different clothes. They furnished their houses differently. Their houses looked different. Their transportation means looked different. Their communications technology was not as advanced as ours. Their military hardware was not as advanced as ours. They didn't have electricity and running water, perhaps. They didn't have HVAC, perhaps. But it's the same dynamic between people. Why? Very simply, because all of those problems, all of those old world problems were brought here to the U.S., and we're still hashing them out. The elitists, the aristocracy, the divine right of kings types, they're still doing what they were doing in the British Isles. And the fierce, independent, liberty-minded among us are still saying, don't tread on me, are still saying, this I'll defend, as we ought. But how would it be if this business in Numbers 36 had been handled differently, had been handled according to modern sensibilities. How would that have been if Moses had said, it doesn't really matter, it's all going to fall apart eventually at a certain point, who cares? How would it have been if God had said, this isn't going to last forever anyways, so don't worry about it. Hundreds of years from now, your descendants are going to be in Babylonian captivity. They're going to be dispersed throughout the whole world. Don't worry about it. No, that's not responsible. That is not a God-honoring, God-imitating way of relating to these kinds of things. Also, 
you don't have it being set up that, you know, you need to be more interested in being a part of the broader nation of Israel than you are being a member of your own tribe or a member of your own clan. You don't have that at all, at all, which I think undermines the kind of thinking which many Christians today, heavily influenced by the ecumenical movement and its talking points of a peace with what came out of the American Civil War and then was brought into the response to World War I and World War II, this idea that we can social engineer the whole world, all of humanity, to stop the wars, to stop the fighting. But while we're at it, we're going to social engineer gender into non-existence, sexuality. You can just do whatever. Our idea of Liberty is very much like the divine right of kings notion. If Joe Biden says it's okay to do X, Y, and Z, if the Supreme Court says, because they're being pressured by Joe Biden, that it's okay to do X, Y, and Z, if the legislature says it's okay to do such and such and you can't criticize it, well, the divine right of kings mentality would say, well, we have to be subject to the governing authorities, right? Oh, ho, 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 whoa, 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 back up, slow down, not so fast. The first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him. It's proper for the questions to be raised regarding marriage, regarding the inheritance of property, regarding the political situation, the ripple effects socially. It's appropriate for the heads of the father's houses of the clan of the people of Gilead, from the clans of the people of Joseph, to ask what they're asking Moses. It's very appropriate. In fact, that's what they should be asking. That's why they're in the position that they are in because they're supposed to be thinking about these things. They're supposed to be paying attention to these things and prioritizing these things and dealing with these things, not just kicking the can down the road because they can't be bothered because we wouldn't want, we wouldn't want to overthink it. No, no, that's not what they're called to. That would be a dereliction of duty. So also there's a boundary. There's a limit. God doesn't say, well, you know what would solve all of this is we just have the heads of the father's houses of the clan of the people of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh from the clans of the people of Joseph, decide who the daughters of Zelophehad will marry. Problem solved. No, no, not quite. Let them marry whom they think best. This is what Yahweh commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whom they think best. Only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. If we did things like this, just like that becomes a blueprint for all such cases in Israel, and it becomes something like case law, precedent, if we followed this precedent, I dare say we would be able to think much more clearly, much more rightly about many political situations, many social controversies in our day as well. Let's jump into a related and contemporary article, though. Uh, Jennifer Roback Morse, a certain PhD writer, contributor for Public Discourse, the journal of the Witherspoon Institute, not to be confused with the journal of the Without Her Spoon Institute. This institute makes sure they are ready for cold cereal and ice cream you wouldn't want to eat such things with a fork, would you? Uh, Jennifer Roback Morris writes this article with a subtitle that is very engaging and thought-provoking 
And I quote, far from settling the marriage debate, getting the state out of marriage will reduce liberty, leave cultural questions simmering, and harm our nation's children. I will put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can read the full piece yourself at your leisure. It's not a long one. It's fairly short. You can read it in under five minutes easily. This one comes to me from my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez. Thank you to J.P. Chavez for continuing to provide very thought-provoking, very stimulating material to discuss and consider on this podcast. And for the rest of my listening audience, But as Jennifer Roback Morse explains in this article, the very libertarian idea of getting the government out of marriage entirely is fraught with implications for future generations. And what are we thinking about those future generations? Are we thinking about those future generations at all when we propose getting the government entirely out of licensing marriage? Are we caring about kids who will be born to couples when we say the government is not concerned with that at all. What about when you have a child who is born out of wedlock and the father may or may not be required to provide for the material needs of his offspring? What about in the case of divorce? A man and a woman get married And for whatever reason these days, it could be any reason or no reason at all. They just don't like each other anymore. They don't get along. They like somebody else better. They decided they don't want to be responsible for the other person. They don't want to submit to or provide for the other. What happens if they have children and then they get divorced and now the wife or ex-wife, as the case may be, and mother is saying that the ex-husband, the father of her children, is not providing for the material needs of those children. How do we resolve that? Do we get the government out of that as well? Do we say that's not the government's business to require the father to provide for the needs of his children? You can quickly see how additional problems are introduced, and I would be interested to hear from any of my libertarian friends out there listening to this podcast in all honesty, it's a genuine question. It's not a challenge. It's not a taunt. I'm not trying to flick your nose. By all means, help me to understand how you would deal with that problem, which would be a consequence of getting the government entirely out of marriage. Are we thinking about future generations the way that God is clearly providing order for future generations in Numbers 36? Note The heads of those fathers' houses are not chided by either Moses or by God for thinking forward to these things. God says, here's what to do about that. In a way that protects and secures future generations from having unnecessary conflict, unneeded conflict. Because you know, case law works both directions. You can set a good precedent. You could set a bad precedent. God sets a good precedent here, which we would do well to follow. And also, by the way, can we just establish that insofar as God puts some restrictions on who these young women can marry, he limits them to marrying within their clan, within their tribe. It is also within the realm of possibility that it's totally okay for a civil government to limit who you can marry. We have a precedent here. 
we have case law here biblically for the government saying you are limited. But we also have precedent for a balance of let them th- let them think about who would seem best for them to marry. Let them marry who they think best. It just has to be within this sample group in the interest of preventing unnecessary conflict down the road. Conflict that has to do with land, land disputes. Let me just speak personally from experience, observing extended family, being a part of some discussions with regards to extended family. If you handle inheritance and distributing the effects of a deceased ancestor vis-a-vis their estate in an orderly way versus a haphazard slapdash way, it makes a huge difference. It makes a huge, huge difference if there's fighting, quarreling, bickering, jockeying for position in the midst of grief at the loss of this loved one who was kind of holding everybody together. Boy, howdy, can that get ugly? And can that leave long-lasting pain, frustration, rifts that are difficult, if not impossible, humanly speaking, to repair. And again, if an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, why wouldn't we get ahead of those rifts? And actually, why wouldn't we enlist the civil government to say, here is the standard. This is how these things are going to be handled moving forward in an orderly way so as to minimize unnecessary conflict and so as to do things properly. Balance it with let the young women who don't have a father, let them marry who seems best to them. I would recommend you check out the full article. If you are libertarian-minded, if you've heard that argument that the government should just get out of marriage entirely, if you've heard that and you've been persuaded by that and you think that's correct and that sounds good, that seems good to you, check out this article from Jennifer Roback Morse at Public Discourse, the Journal of the Witherspoon Institute. And you might just change your mind. You might change your thinking. Uh, Also, I would add some additional thoughts that occurred to me as I was reading this that are not dealt with directly in the article, but I think are worth bringing up as well. If we make it all about consent of individuals, consenting adults, calling whatever they want to a marriage, it's a slippery slope from that to activists, queer theory, academics, and activists saying, well, why stop at consenting adults? Why not say consenting children as well? And then you have everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. You have chaos. You have bedlam. You have anarchy. You have lawlessness. Lawlessness is not the goal. Now, the, the law is not an end unto itself. We don't want legalism and we don't want something draconian, overbearing, harsh, severe, so that we can prove our devotion to God by being very strict. That's not the idea either. But the idea is, because God is a God of order, we want there to be an orderliness to how we make these decisions, how we come to these conclusions. And we want the decisions that we come to, to honor God and to honor each and every one to whom honor is due. We want to make decisions that love God with all our being and which love one another as we love ourselves. We want to make good decisions holistically. And so you say, we're going to protect children, future generations, 
We're going to protect the social fabric. We're going to protect the family unit and the extended family and the community and the tribe and the nation by putting certain fences up regarding this. Now, I personally would say if you're going to do a little bit of that, it needs to not be arbitrary because otherwise you're right back where you start with the whole divine right of kings. That is Pandora's box. Once you say that the king can just declare what is good and what is right because God's put them in a position of authority, for one, we have lots of historical examples of that going very badly, leading into all kinds of conflict and oppression and tyranny. For another thing, we have biblical examples like, say, for instance, Saul. Just because God made Saul a king, that does not mean that everything and anything that Saul did was right. It was not within his jurisdiction to rewrite the whole of the natural law or the moral laws of the universe. And when Saul disobeyed God, the kingdom was taken away from him. So also, every human authority, every human institution that sets itself up against what God has commanded, what God has permitted, what God has prohibited, what God blesses and what God punishes and curses, every human institution that has authority from God but sets itself up against the commands of God, the word of God, will in due time, in due season, find itself abolished, struck down, disempowered, replaced. That's a fact. That is 100% what the biblical text tells us in anecdote after anecdote. And even if you just read to the end of the book, that's ultimately what happens in the second coming. You have the returning son of God with a sword to trample nations which have rebelled against him, which have plotted with their kings and their rulers. They've plotted for how they can liberate themselves from his rule, and he will trample them underfoot like he's making wine. So we should tread carefully ourselves, kiss the sun while he's on the way, lest he become angry and destroy you. Our laws pertaining to marriage, pertaining to gender and sexuality, should have an infusion of the fear of God. If our nation, if our people would persist. And you don't say, you don't say, if you're a God-fearing person, you don't say, well, because we know in the end it's all going to burn anyways, there's no point because that's not what God says in Numbers 36. There are warnings. If you do not obey, if you do not drive out all the people that I am telling you to drive out, then this, then I will do to you as I thought to do to them. I will drive you out as well. I will punish you just like I'm punishing these peoples who have rebelled against me. I will punish you as well. That should be our expectation. But so long as it is today, and if we have the opportunity today to not have that be our fate, well, then we should take it and not blow it off in a fatalistic, pessimistic way. Moving on, though, speaking of future generations, children, ramifications, implications, consequences, thinking long-term, thinking generationally. I recently announced to a number of people in our proximity on my side of the family and some of my friends, not all, but a few, as the occasion brought it up, 
what we have decided, Lorna and I, together, ultimately, I believe it's my decision, but I want to make that decision in such a way that's considerate and kind towards my wife, Lauren. I want us to make it together. That's my decision, is for us to make a decision together on this. What to name this baby boy due November 5th? And we had some ideas. We had some names that I liked better, some names she liked better, and a few names that we both liked, but then we kept running into the problem of middle names. What would you put in between that first name and the last name of Mullet? Yeah, that doesn't sound good. Ah, that doesn't work. Yeah, we've already used that name. If this had been a girl, we would have very easily, very quickly named her Kellen Aliana. We've had that name actually since before Evelyn was born. We've had that name for quite some time, but this is a boy and we're glad for that. I'm very happy to report I will have eight sons by God's grace. I know he has a good purpose and a good plan for them. And so as we discussed at some length over several months, what to name a baby boy, we finally settled last week on Nathaniel Job. Nathaniel Job Mullet. Now, the first name, Nathaniel, you might say, oh, that's nice. I like that. What are you going to call him for short? And I say, I would like to not call him anything for short. I would like to call him his name. If his name is Nathaniel, I'd like to call him Nathaniel. Thank you very much. But as these things go, very, very often, very often, nicknames arise. And so you have to think of those two. You have to consider what will the nickname be and will it be a good nickname or will he get taunted and mocked by his peers when they want to be ugly? I thought the name, a Latin Roman name, Corinius, would be cool. It means spear. My first name, Garrett, means spear ruler. So I thought, well, that would be fitting, appropriate. If I can't get Garrett Ashley Mullet the second across the finish line, if I can't persuade my wife of that, well, maybe Corinius with a Q would be fitting. And then I thought, no, 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 that won't work in our context because his peers would call him queer for short when they wanted to mock him. Quirinius would be shortened to queer. And so, nope, we're not going to do that. Not going to do that. Mm -mm. But Nathaniel, that's good. That's a good name. And some people will probably call him Nate for short or Nathan for short. And that's all right. Not my favorite, but that's all right. Some things you just can't control and you don't need to. I'll call him Nathaniel for short. Nathaniel is short for Nathaniel. But the middle name Job, right? The middle name Job has got a good lyrical quality to it. Nathaniel, Job, Mullet. Nathaniel is a longer first name. Job is very short, one syllable. But I mentioned this name to a certain family member of mine. I won't say who. And his response was, ooh, yeah, I don't know, though. Job, I don't know if you want to name a boy Job, do you? Job? Yeah, I don't I don't know. And I said, well, you know, here's the thing about Job. It says he didn't sin in anything that he did and replied in response to his sufferings. We read that several times, and it's never repudiated. That's... Early, when he very first starts to suffer and doesn't even know why, very early, he has the right response, the appropriate response 
And the biblical account tells us he did not sin in anything that he said. And so some of the pushback I received was, well, he wasn't, you know, he was exemplary, but he, he wasn't sinless, right? You know, he ends up getting challenged by God and put in his place. And so clearly he did sin. I said, no, no, it doesn't say that, right? It doesn't say that. He is questioned right back by God. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, for instance? Did you counsel me? Did you advise me on how to? No, no, indeed. But that's not the same thing as telling Job that he sinned. Asking those questions back is not the same thing. And so I did a little bit of sleuthing. An article was sent to me by this relative of mine. And he said, well, you know, check this out. You know, here's somebody making an argument that maybe Job did sin, actually. You shouldn't ask those questions of God. But I went and did some sleuthing as well. And here's what I found from gotquestions.org. The question is, and this must come up fairly often, if this is a question at gotquestions.org, the question is, did Job sin in anything he said? And here's the answer. And I quote, The main point of the book of Job is to challenge what is known as the retribution principle. This is the idea that God blesses those who are righteous and punishes those who are wicked in this life. If a person is blessed, that is proof that he is righteous. If a person suffers hardship, that is proof of sin in his life. As Eliphaz asks in Job 4.7, quote, Consider now, who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? End quote. Most of the people in the book of Job labor under this assumption. This is why Job's three friends all tell him that he should confess his sin so that God will relent. In Job 8, 5-7, Bildad tells Job, quote, But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright even now, he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be, end quote. Similarly, in Job 11, 13 to 19, Zophar says, quote, Yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then, free of fault, you will lift up your face, you will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as waters gone by. Life will be brighter than noonday and darkness will become like morning. You will be secure because there is hope. You will look about you and take your rest in safety. You will lie down with no one to make you afraid, and many will court your favor, end quote. Job, on the other hand, knows that he has not sinned, so he maintains his innocence before his friends. This is not to say that Job thinks he is perfect or sinless, but he counters the assumption that he must have committed some horrible sin, which he has successfully hidden, to warrant such a response from God. As described in the first verse of chapter 1, Job was, quote, blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil, end quote. There is a difference between being sinless, which no one is, and being a person of integrity who genuinely wants to please God. Interestingly, Job does not question the retribution principle, but continues to affirm it, and that is an interesting observation. Worth noting, he thinks he understands the way things are supposed to work, and he cannot understand why God is doing this to him. First, he is plunged into despair and laments that he was ever born. Job 3. Then he begins to doubt God's justice and wisdom. It seems to him that God is not playing by the rules. 
Job's friends see this as an attack upon the character of God. In Job 8, 2 to 3, Bildad asks, quote, How long will you say such things? Your words are a blistering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? End quote. In Job 23, Job says that if he could only present his case to God, he could prove his innocence. Now, if I fast forward without reading this entire thing, but it is good, right? Don't get me wrong. It's not that it's bad, but just for the sake of time here, you can read it on your own. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. Go check it out in full. It's three and a half minutes or so. Third from last paragraph, quote, in Job 1, after the initial hardships that Job endured, the closing verse states, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. This is not the verdict on Job for everything he says in the whole book, but a specific statement about his initial response. Later on, Job doubted and questioned God. Some might see this as sin. Others might see what Job did as something like the laments in the Psalms. However, God does not reprimand Job other than the questioning in chapters 38 to 41. God does reprimand Job's three friends, quote, because you have not spoken truth about me as my servant Job has, end quote, Job 42, 7. The truth that Job spoke is probably in Job 42, 1 to 6, where Job admitted that God's ways are beyond his understanding. The three friends think they understand God perfectly. God then directs Job to offer sacrifices on behalf of his friends and to pray for them, saying he will forgive them. This is a vindication of Job's righteousness, Job 42, 8 through 9. Now, we'll just stop right there. And there's one more paragraph, but again, you can go check it out yourself. If you struggle with this, I stop right there because Job is counted righteous and blameless in what he says in the midst of his sufferings. God counts him. God tells him to pray for his three friends who have not spoken truly. And why this is so good, why this is important, why it's on my mind here lately is because I know people, have known people, many, in fact, over the years, who adhere to this retribution principle. They believe, it would seem, that if they prosper, if they are well off, if they live in a big, beautiful house that they have paid for and paid off in the nice part of town, if they drive late model cars, if they are always put together and healthy and well-received socially, they think that that is proof that they are righteous. So also, I have known people over the years, it's very often the same people who, if they're trying to find a reason, as I see it, to not lend aid to people who are struggling or having a hard time, they reach for any excuse they can find to demonstrate that the person that they would otherwise help doesn't deserve the help. In fact, shouldn't get the help because they have clearly sinned and that's why they're falling on hard times. They clearly must have sinned and they clearly must still be sinning because they're having these health issues or they're struggling financially or they have some enemies or they're not always put together. If someone is in a bad state, the reasoning goes, according to the same reasoning of Job's three friends, the reasoning goes, clearly, this person, those people must have sinned and therefore they're being judged and therefore I am excused, I am absolved of any responsibility to come to their aid, to 
help them, to assist them. And there's something fitting about Lawrence and my second son, Elihu James, having recently celebrated his 15th birthday on Sunday, his name being Elihu, coming from the book of Job. There's something fitting about expecting an eighth son, a ninth child in November, and having the middle name for this baby boy be Job. There's something appropriate. There's something continuous. There's a consistency to it. And there's a consistency in reasoning and purposes. Now, where Lorne and I were, where I was, when we found out we were expecting our second-born son, Elihu being a young man fit very neatly with my being a young man. The older I get, the less I think of myself as a young man. Now, those who are older will always think of me as a young man, but I'm not the young man that I was at 20, 21 years old. And yet still, this retribution principle is firmly entrenched in many Christians' minds. And I say, they're not reading the book of Job closely enough. They should go back and reread it. He was not suffering because he was being punished by God, because he had the wrong theology, because he went to the wrong church. But he was suffering because he was blameless and God had highlighted his being blameless. Have you considered my servant Job? And Job has no idea. And for that matter, his three friends have no idea. They assume. They assume that the way it works is good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Lots of bad things are happening to you. You must have been very bad behind the scenes. Somewhere, something deserved this, right? And the simple answer is no. The simple fact of the matter is no. And we as Christians, if we are going into a period of American history, of world history, where there's going to be much more intense persecution of Christians, if that's likely, then we need to get acquainted with the book of Job again and fast, like right now, like yesterday would be good. But now is the next best thing. We need to get acquainted with Job's name, meaning, according to some sources I looked up, persecution, and embrace that. Embrace that God has a good purpose. God is not good or not good, depending on if we suffer. No, God is good and we may suffer, and he will work that to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We need to know that because it affects how we endure trials. It affects how we come alongside others who are suffering. And I think there's something corrupt and wicked in many Christian hearts and minds that is not, it's not been sanctified, it's not been reformed so much as it should be in relation to the same error of Job's three friends. And you think, how could they have sinned in what they said? That God is saying, Job will pray for you and then you will be forgiven. What was their sin? What, what did they do? They didn't speak truly. They didn't testify to God's character as Job did. Job's response was correct where theirs was presumptuous. What Job says is what we should say. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now he asks the question. He asks it in various ways, but then he says, God's ways are beyond my understanding, and yet I trust that they are good. I trust that he is good. More of us need to know that. More of us need to meditate on that and devote ourselves to that. Next up, though, 
Let's talk about situations in which people suffer, not because they're innocent, not despite their innocence, not because (laughs) uh, there was some back and forth between God and Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? Peter Heck over at Not The Bee just posted this morning. It finally happened in the White House briefing room. And what I'll do without giving a lot of lead in on the audio is I will play for you cut one for this episode. And this one's going to be about so four minutes, I think it is, of, well, surprisingly enough, journalism and hard questions, long overdue questions being asked of Corinne Jean-Pierre, White House Press Secretary. Here it is, without further ado, take a listen, cut one. And secondly, um, the president invited his son Hunter to the state dinner last night. Um, I'm wondering if you could take us into the thinking and decision-making of why uh, the president decided to invite I, his son. I'm just not going to get into family discussion, personal family discussion. As you know, Hunter is his son. I'm just not going to get well, into it. Let me ask you this. If, if Hunter Biden wasn't the president's son, would he have invited someone who had just reached a plea agreement with federal prosecutors well, two days co- earlier? Well, a couple of things. Again, that's his son. It's a, he's a family member. It is not uncommon for family members to attend uh, events at the White House. You could look at past presidents. I'm sure you have. So that is not uncommon. Uh, as it relates to anything uh, uh, related to, uh, to Hunter, I'm just not going to respond to it from here. Can I follow up on that? Okay. Well, I just called in somebody. Go ahead. Yeah. So, but I mean, so Kirby wouldn't answer James's question, though. Are you going to answer the question? I mean, not a reasonable question to ask no, with the President I, of the United States was involved, as this message seems to suggest, in some sort of a coercive conversation for business dealings by a son. Is that something, if he wasn't, then maybe you should tell us. So that. here's the thing, I, and I appreciate the question. I believe my colleague uh, at the White House Council uh, has answered this question already, has dealt with this, has uh, uh, made it very clear. I just don't have anything to share outside of what my colleagues have shared, uh, and so I would refer you to him and the, D- and the DOJ. Just not going to comment from here. Text I will, what I can tell you is I know that my colleague has dealt with this. He, he uh, addressed this at the White House Council. I just don't have anything else to share. I just, I just answered the question. I just answered the question. Yes or no, was the president involved in the shakedown attempt? Stephen, Stephen, I just answered the question. I just said, I just, this is, it's not up to you how I answer the question. I just answer the question by telling you my colleagues at the White House Council has dealt with this, and I would refer you to them. Go ahead. Can you just remind us what your colleague said from the White House Council so we have it? I would, I, would, I would refer you to them and they will share their statement with all of you. My question is about your anything? statements from that podium. You've stated that the president stands by his comment from the 2020 campaign that he never once discussed his son's overseas business dealings with his son. And you stood at that podium yeah. and you reaffirmed that. Do you stand by your reaffirmation? I, what I will say is nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. And I will leave it there. Anything else, I will refer you to the White House Counsel. This is not a change? I just answered the question. You, asked, you just asked me, do, does my statement change? I just told you nothing has changed. There's That's answering the question. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Stephen, I'm calling on your colleague right now. Go ahead. Thank you. To, to follow up on my colleague, is there anything that you can say with regard to this text message and what the president's son was alleging? Was the president there or not? I would refer you to my 
colleagues at the White House Counsel. They have addressed this, and I refer you to them. Go ahead. Karine, have you spoken to the president about this? Have you asked him whether he was there with his son on July 30th? This is not a conversation that I've had with the president. Again, I would refer you to the White House Counsel. Do you plan to have that conversation no. with the president? No. Did the president speak with the attorney general at all? I can't. I, I, I cannot say uh, if the president uh, had had a conversation with the attorney general last night. What I can refer you to is the White House Counsel's Office as it relates to the uh, allegations. Uh, they've already addressed this. This is something for them to deal with. I refer you to the Department of Justice on anything else if you don't want to speak to the White House Counsel's Office. And there was reporting earlier in the week that after the plea agreement was reached by Hunter Biden, that the president felt relieved that that part of it was behind him. Is that true? Can you speak I can't to speak his to that. I cannot speak to the president's mindset. Again, I would refer you to the White House Counsel's Office. And there you have it. There you have it. Actual journalism and the White House press corps doing its job and working together to say, hey, wait a second. Uh, I actually want to ask that question too, or a variation on that question. You know, we, we would also like to know that because we would like to report on that. You know, actually, we're going to have to write something about this uh, with my newspaper as well. And, you know, actually, yeah, going back to what he said that you didn't answer, can I ask a different question? And you can tell KJP, as she's known, which is very close to KGB, <laughs> just just a, a, a passing uh, note. It, it doesn't mean anything. But it, it is funny. KJP and KGB, remarkably similar when you say them fast. Karine uh, Jean-Pierre, White House Press Secretary, does not want to give these reporters anything. And she wants to dismiss and spin and turn this into, oh, you know, it's, it's totally normal, right? The, the president's family members attend these kinds of things all the time, and it's not at all unusual. And I would refer you to the White House Council, I would refer you. I would refer you. I would refer. No, I'm not going to. No, I didn't talk with the president. No, no. And she's so testy, right? She's so testy and dismissive, and it's not a good look. But let's go back. Let's go back again to Numbers 36, and let's highlight how not dismissive Moses' response is to the heads of fathers' houses of the clans of the tribe of Israel wondering about what the implications are for the daughters of Zelophehad marrying men from other tribes. What are the implications long-term? And the response from Moses, who is in some sense God's press secretary, <laughs> you might say, <laughs> the response from Moses is not dismissive and it's not testy there. It is, here's what God has said. I'll go ask and I'll tell you. And that's what the White House press secretary should be doing. I'll ask the president and I will have an answer for you when next we meet. That should be the response. This is a bad example. This is a bad example when the White House press secretary can just stonewall the journalists in the room for wanting to report as they're supposed to in a way other than being lapdogs to this administration. You can tell that is not what this White House administration has planned for it. That's not what they intend. That's not what they like. That's not what they want. They want a lapdog media that reports on their political enemies in a negative way and reports only in a positive way when it pertains to the White House and the agenda of this president and the credibility of this president. But what that would turn into in the long run, if that were to stand, would be every kind of corruption. 
And I think in some sense it has turned into that. But you may say, well then, it's too late. Nothing can be done about it. And I say, no, no, that's not true. Sunk cost, whatever we have wasted in the way of time and opportunities to this point, but moving forward, if we don't call for accountability, if we don't actually do justice in relation to Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and the Democrats in particular, and those establishment Republicans who've been guilty of the same, if we don't do justice now, we will not have a country. We will not be a people. And we should look to the possibility that if China does rule the world, if China does defeat the United States and subjugate us, how we speak to corruption in our country now may have a big impact on how we are dealt with, how we are handled. It is not a foregone conclusion that we will continue to be a free and independent people. If we allow ourselves to accept corruption, then at a certain point, you get somebody who's willing to sell the entire country to a foreign power as long as the king's ransom is big enough. And then what? If we are the kind of people who tolerate every abuse, every corrupt figure, every tyrant, if we are the kind of people who accept and tolerate stonewalling of legitimate questions from what is still supposed to be, at least, is at least advertised to be a free and independent press, then when we are ruled by foreigners, if that comes to pass, if that is the judgment that we are given over to, it will go far worse for us than if we are the kind of people who objected strenuously to foreign peoples, foreign countries, foreign nations, foreign entities being dealt with corruptly in our name, on our behalf. A very similar thing should be examined in British history with Edmund Burke going after abuses of the colonial administration, ruling on behalf of, in the name of the British crown, the British people. Edmund Burke made a lot of enemies going after corrupt foreign administration officials acting on behalf of the British crown. He made a lot of enemies, but he was right. And in the long run, the right side of history casts Edmund Burke in a positive light for him having gone after those who were, in a mercenary fashion, accepting bribes and abusing foreign peoples. Whether those foreign peoples are Christians, whether they fear God, is largely a moot point. If they were Christians, we should object strongly to our brothers and sisters in Christ being abused and sold out and oppressed by our own government. But if they're not Christians, and our government is publicly aligning itself with Christianity and then abusing foreign peoples in our name because certain individuals in government get very rich, they get a lot of power for themselves by doing that, are we thinking about the bad testimony relative to the Christian faith, which is hazarded? Now, you and I can say, oh, well, but everybody knows Joe Biden isn't a Christian. Yeah, but every time his press secretary is asked about his position relative Roman Catholic teaching on abortion or transgenderism or 
homosexuality, the line is that he attends Roman Catholic services regularly. He's a staunch Catholic. For people who aren't Christians in a lot of the world, there's very little difference between a Roman Catholic and a Protestant and an Eastern Orthodox. They're going to put all of the above under the umbrella of Christianity, and they're going to say, oh, yeah, these Christians. And we shouldn't tolerate that. We shouldn't shrug at that. We should understand that there are Christians in foreign countries, like, say, for instance, China, which may be hated all the more if a allegedly, professedly Christian foreign head of state is abusing their country or extorting, accepting bribes from, but also extorting prominent people in their own country. These things matter. They matter to God. They should matter to us. And we shouldn't shrug them off. And we shouldn't accept anyone shrugging them off. They need to be dealt with and quickly. Don't drag it out. It's already been far too long of deferring justice. And every day that goes by, every week and month and year that goes by, more abuses are added to the list and more shame, more calumny is associated with the legacy handed down to us by our forefathers in this country. I, for one, am not good with that. And I can't take it sitting down. I can't quietly endure. These things should be objected to and strenuously and dealt with. We need to not just talk about justice. We need to do justice. And we need to require that justice is done straight away, post-haste. Yesterday would be preferable, but today we'll have to do. But let's go back in time a ways and let's talk more about the Highland Clearances. Let's talk more about how there is no new thing under the sun. Wikipedia has an entry, a fairly lengthy entry, for Highland Clearances. In Scottish Gaelic, they are known as Futakane Nangadehale, the eviction of the Gaels. These were the forced evictions of a significant number of tenants in the Scottish Highlands and Islands, mostly in two phases from 1750 to 1860. The first phase resulted from agricultural improvement driven by the need for landlords to increase their income. Many had substantial debts with actual or potential bankruptcy being a large part of the story of the clearances. This involved the enclosure of the open fields managed on the Runrig system and shared grazing. These were usually replaced with large-scale pastoral farms on which much higher rents were paid. The displaced tenants were expected to be employed in industries such as fishing, quarrying, or the kelp industry. Their reduction in status from farmer to crofter was one of the causes of resentment. The second phase involved overcrowded crofting communities from the first phase that had lost the means to support themselves through famine and or collapse of industries that they had relied on. This is when, quote, assisted passages, end quote, were common when landowners paid the fares for their tenants to emigrate. Tenants who were selected for this had, in practical terms, little choice but to emigrate. The Highland potato famine struck towards the end of this period, giving greater urgency to the process. The eviction of tenants went against Duskjas, the principle that clan members had an inalienable right to rent land in the clan territory. This was never recognized in Scottish law. It was gradually abandoned 
by clan chiefs as they began to think of themselves simply as commercial landlords rather than as patriarchs of their people, a process that arguably started with the Statutes of Iona of 1609. The clan members continued to rely on Duthchos. This difference in viewpoints was an inevitable source of grievance. The actions of landlords varied. Some did try to delay or limit evictions, often at their own financial cost. The Countess of Sutherland genuinely believed her plans were advantageous for those resettling in Croft communities and could not understand why tenants complained. However, a few landlords displayed complete lack of concern for evicted tenants. Now, what you have to realize here is something very, very like a Green New Deal or a great leap forward was in view for those pushing this, requiring it, demanding of it, complete obedience across the land. In reading about the Highland Clearances, reading about the history of the land that my McFarlane ancestors came from, that Lauren's Duff ancestors came from, in reading about this and realizing it was around this time, just right around this time, that the statues of Iona of 1609 were enacted, that my ancestors left Scotland and moved to Northern Ireland and then on to the United States, or what was at the time uh, still a collection of colonies in the New World. Realizing that puts a very different feeling in my guts as to the circumstances in which my ancestors entered this new continent, this new world. You know, what's curious is the 1619 Project folks who talk about how black Africans were brought to the new world against their will, brought here as slaves. The 1619 folks want you to think that America's history is one of racism and slavery and oppression of minorities from the beginning. Actually, there's a bit more to it than just black versus white. There's actually quite a lot more to it. For instance, indentured servants, so-called, indentured servitude was the precursor of chattel slavery. It was. White Cargo is a great book to read on this if you want to know more about it. But the Irish were treated abominably. But so were many Scots. So were many poor Britons. So were many poor Welsh Essentially, the colonies were, to the British crown, a dumping ground for undesirables, the throwaways, those who were in the way, those who were impeding progress as the enlightened kings of the British Isles saw it. Australia, very similar, but much more disproportionately a dumping ground, a penal colony, The colonies in North America were not, first and foremost, that, but nevertheless, it wasn't until the war for independence had been won that the new government of these United States told the British, you can no longer use North America, our colonies here, our states here now, you can no longer use this territory as a dumping ground for convicts and prostitutes and orphans. You can't do that anymore. And again, this is something that doesn't get talked about much by the 1619 folks. The 1619 Project folks, who in conjunction with the New York Times and the Howard Zins of academia and the Democrat Party, want you to think 
that the whole story of America is our white forefathers came to this country so they could own black Africans and oppress women and oppress the Indians and drive the Indians off their land. Those folks don't know what they're talking about when they don't ever get into things like the Highland Clearances happening at about the same time. My McFarlane ancestors being put to the horn, as it's said, being forced to find caution. My McFarlane ancestors, Robert and Patrick McFarlane, being driven out as part of this larger push for social engineering in the British Isles, a kind of cleaning up the riffraff and political enemies and preying upon those who were deemed vulnerable or hostile, non-compliant. My Scottish ancestors were driven out of Scotland with the same casual disdain that black Africans were brought to the New World under. And just as I read for you here about the Highland Clearances, there were a lot of landlords, so-called clan chiefs, who had been persuaded by the reforms envisioned by King James VI and I to see themselves not so much as patriarchs of their clans in the traditional sense, but to see themselves as commercial landlords. Those who bought into that and who were encouraged to send their sons off to live in Edinburgh, where the cost of living was higher, they needed to collect more in rents than what their poor tenants could afford. So they had to restructure everything. And anybody who said no, and in particular the Gales, the Gaelic Highland clans were liable to say no. Anybody who objected was dealt with severely, brutally. Those who couldn't pay their debts were very often sold as indentured servants. And then over time, that euphemism gave way to, well, now we just need slaves. Let's just call this what it is. We need slaves. And it just so happened that in the South, in a lot of marshy, boggy places where diseases borne by mosquitoes were common, these white slaves, essentially, call them what you will, white slaves, who had been brought to clear the land and cultivate it for growing cotton and tobacco, etc., these white slaves were much more susceptible to diseases carried by mosquitoes. Meanwhile, Native Americans just didn't make very good slaves. It was tried. They didn't make very good slaves. They weren't submissive enough. They weren't obedient enough. They were too feisty. I think you would find that to be the case with the Scots as well. Too ready to fight. Too ready to get their independence and maintain it. But black Africans, they were easy picking. And it also just so happened that over time, just like the Native Americans were very vulnerable to new world introduction of older world diseases, they didn't have the genetic defenses against old world diseases. It just so happened that black Africans brought to the new world had genetic defenses against a lot of diseases carried by mosquitoes. And so they did much better. They survived in much better numbers and kept plantations more profitable. But what you had making up most of the landed aristocracy in those southern colonies, what you had, according to historians, was a lot of 
defeated cavaliers who had lost the last English civil war. And so they came to the new world to find fortune and fame, to lick their wounds. Or you had lesser sons of noble sires who were able to get quite a lot of land and we'll send them to the new world. We'll keep the oldest son back here in the home country to take over for Pops when he retires or passes on. He'll take over the lands and the titles in the old country, but the younger son, the second born or the third born, will go to the new world and try that out. And it was the Highlanders who had been forced off their land or forced out due to persecution. Either they had been evicted or they'd been driven out because they were these Highland clans, like my ancestors, clan chiefs, barons, lairds, who had been driven out because they were persecuted by King James sixth and first, driven to the new world, were descendants of some of the most ancient kings and queens of Scotland, and before that, Dalriada in my ancestors. My ancestor, John McFarlane, 11th Baron of Arrowcar, 8th Chief, killed at the Battle of Flodden, was knighted by his fifth cousin, King James IV. A few generations down the line, his descendants would be pushed out of Scotland. And when they came to the Americas, what did the McFarlands do? They settled where they would be left alone, or they had a reasonable expectation of being left alone, tolerated, where their independence would be respected, their freedom would be guaranteed. My Scottish ancestors, many of them for generations, settled in Pennsylvania. And this is why come the Civil War here in America in the 1860s, George Fisher McFarland, who was not just a school teacher, but he was a teacher of school teachers, he led the 151st Pennsylvania Volunteers as a lieutenant colonel because Pennsylvania was very tolerant and very unlikely to persecute people on the basis of their religion, their creed. Those Quakers, ironically, very pacifistic, didn't like fighting. Those Quakers would tolerate these Scots-Irish and also actually on my dad's side, the Mennonites set up in Pennsylvania for the same reasons, very similar reasons, getting away from religious persecution, political persecution in Switzerland. They came to America and they settled in Pennsylvania where the Quakers would give them space, give them room, not go after them just because they believed a bit differently or practiced a bit differently about their worship of God or their reverence for God or their devotion to God. But it's very curious. You read the Highland Clearances here at Wikipedia, read about the Countess of Sutherland. The Countess of Sutherland thought this is for the best and these poor wretches will thank us in the end. It's for their good. They don't know any better. She partly believed that, if you read the section about her, or where she is talked about in particular, to do with social engineering, she partly believed this because she had descended from some low-born ancestors who were forced into a better condition after falling on hard times, and then she had been upwardly mobile, marrying up, doing very well. But all of that is later on in the history of the Clarences. It seems to me from my reading that the beginning of the Clarences, 
was James VI and I, nicknamed Queen James, closet, bisexual, homosexual, writing the book on demonology that helped fan the flames of witch hunts in the British Isles and also in the colonies in North America. That King James, thinking he could social engineer the Scots and Scotland, even if it came at the price of driving huge numbers of Scots out of the country, driving them abroad. In some sense, you have a Scots diaspora because of persecution by King James VI and I. In some sense, we can thank, even though we should really more so blame, King James VI and I for the United States of America coming about in the first place. But let's come back to the present because we're more familiar with the present and we should be thinking multi-generationally about the impact that will ripple down through the centuries if the world stands for our descendants, for this whole green revolution, for the Green New Deal. We should think about a politically incorrect guide to the Great Depression and the New Deal, which I just finished up yesterday, or last night, I should say, where we realize what would have been a typical, common, normal cycle of upturns and downturns in the economy, what would have been better handled by individuals making choices for what they deemed to be most profitable for themselves and for their families and for their communities, when that was commandeered by lucky number-picking FDR and his administration, who wanted more than anything to self-actualize and to impose their will on the United States and to remake the United States of America in their own vision. They thought they were so smart and they wanted to prove it to everybody by being in control, by having power. What we got was not just a normal cycle. What we got was a prolonged economic depression. What we got was the Great Depression. They didn't rescue America from the Great Depression. FDR and Herbert Hoover before him, like Obama and George W. Bush before him, caused the economic troubles to be so severe and so long-lasting and so dramatically painful for so many Americans. Because again, social engineering by those who saw themselves as prototypical econs in behavioral economics, this would be the people who see themselves as supremely rational and normal humans they see as being as a rule, irrational, not knowing what's good for them, not knowing what's best for them, not making the right decisions. These men who've gone before have their equivalent in the Biden administration, in the Democratic Party today, in the World Economic Forum, in the United Nations. These people have their equivalent in Al Gore. They have their equivalent in Greta Thunberg. And actually, these people all have their equivalent, in some sense, in the Vikings, to go e-viking was to plunder those who weren't doing a good enough job as they saw it, securing their wealth, protecting their land, their women, their children, their communities. Go plunder them and then go and trade. The Vikings were renowned traders, not just raiders, but also traders, but they were trading on what they raided. And so also these who want to take over the world are motivated by a very similar perspective on the cosmos and on man's relationship with nature. 
These also are happy to sacrifice slaves after a fashion if that will bring economic prosperity or a victory in battle against one's enemies. They also are happy to pillage and to plunder and then to retell history in such a way as to make themselves the heroes. God knows. God knows what is correct. God knows what is right and just, and God will avenge. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. God will see that justice is done for those who are unrepentant, those who are ultimately, first and foremost, sinning against him, not sinning against you and me. When they plunder us, when they raid us, when they make excuses and tell very clever myths about how this is for all our good, that they would seize all of the wealth, all of the land, all of the territory, all of the opportunity, all of the decision-making. They're not, first and foremost, sinning against us. They're sinning against God. And God will see that they are paid back what they have sown. God will not be mocked. For our next item of consideration, I would draw your attention to Monticello.org and their page in the Thomas Jefferson Encyclopedia dedicated to his personal seal. If you follow the link, which will be in the description for this podcast episode, you will see a picture of one of Thomas Jefferson's seals. The caption in the entry reads as follows. The seal pictured to the right was identified as, quote, one of Mr. J's seals, end quote, by Thomas Jefferson's grandson-in-law, Nicholas Philip Trist. It bears the motto, quote, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God, end quote. Jefferson's memorandum book contains the notation, quote, P.D. Thompson for a seal, three to seven pounds on March 26th, 1786, perhaps referring to the purchase of the seal shown here. The first known intact copy of the seal is on a letter to Richard Jem from April 1790. The seal appears on the frontispiece of Henry Randolph's The Life of Thomas Jefferson and can also be seen on one of the gates to the Monticello graveyard. Quote, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God, end quote, was a motto suggested but not used for the seal of the United States. Jefferson eventually appropriated it for his own seal. The source of the motto as used by Jefferson is likely Benjamin Franklin. Now, what's interesting is I tried to do a little bit of digging to find out, did Benjamin Franklin ever say this thing? And if so, where did Ben Franklin get this saying? That led me to an interesting forum discussion from November of 2020, of all times, in which someone wanted to know whether, quote, resistance to tyranny or tyrants is obedience to God, end quote, is actually to be found in the works and writings of John Knox, famous Scots reformer, reformer of theology, we should say, reformer of church polity, it should be said, not reformer of the social imaginary, first and foremost, not reformer of the country's agricultural practices or social institutions, first and foremost, but reformer of Scott's theology. A certain Ben Walker replied to this question with the helpful reference to the political theory of John Knox by John R. Gray, published 1939. 
Quote, in his dispute with Lathington in 1564, he concludes, quote, that subjects not only may, but also ought to withstand and resist their princes whensoever they do anything expressly repugning to God, his law, or holy ordinance, end quote. The text referenced Knox, Works, 2.450. So that is to say, again, as I've been telling you, a lot of these ideas that were so essential to the formation of the United States of America really came not just from the Greeks and the Romans. Yes, not just from the history of Christianity generally. Yes, plenty comes from our shared Christian life and thought over 1,700 years or so. But in particular, a lot of American ideals came from the Scots. More to the point, from Scots clergy and churchmen reforming the Christian life and thought of Scotland 500 years ago, or you might say some 200 years prior to the Declaration of Independence. You have men like John Knox lighting a fire in Scotland for the Scots Reformation. You have men like Samuel Rutherford taking these ideas inherent to the Scots Reformation and applying them to the king because you had to, right? There was no separation of church and state. And so the king would claim he derived his authority from God. And then when England broke away from Rome, when the king of England said he was head over the church of England and would not be subject to the Pope, suddenly the king in England and in the British Isles more broadly took on something like the attitude of the Pope in Rome. And insofar as all of the principles, all of the thinking, all of the sentiment and attitude and presuppositional framework inherent to calling the Pope even to repentance had to be transposed onto the King of England or in due time, the British monarch. And so you have Samuel Rutherford going back through Old Testament and New Testament and debating whether the king is any less a target for questioning according to God's word when the king is acting, speaking, teaching after a fashion, operating contrary to God's word. And the conclusion, the resounding conclusion from Samuel Rutherford is no, God, yes, God makes the king, but God in his word shows that he makes the king and also uses the people to make the king. And God also unmakes kings and uses peoples to unmake kings. And consistently God raises up and then those he has raised up or allowed to have authority and exercise authority, God removes from positions of authority if they abuse their position, if they disobey God, if they require and lead and try to force their people and other peoples to disobey God. In due time, Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex would be secularized by Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine, in turn, would be widely read by the founders of the United States of America, alongside others, to be sure. But Thomas Paine would be very influential, secularizing the ideas of Samuel Rutherford and others, and then applying them to the problem of 
of these colonists relative the British monarch. And when you realize that a short 150 years prior to the American Revolution, you had the Highland clearances and you have Scotsmen and their wives and their children still fresh off of maybe a few generations prior, maybe not that many. My ancestors, it should be noted, first began to be buried on this continent in 1758. James McFarland, born 1698 in Ireland, died 1758 Pennsylvania. His son, Arthur McFarland, the first to be both born and to pass away here in what would be the United States of America. Born 1720 Pennsylvania, died 1780 Pennsylvania, happened to die the same year a smallpox epidemic raged through Providence, Pennsylvania, from what I've discovered. Arthur's son, another John McFarland, born 1766, a young lad of 10 when the American War for Independence was going on, when the Declaration of Independence was signed. And where was he? He was in Pennsylvania. He was there in the same colony as the signers of the Declaration of Independence at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. And you've got to think to yourself, if you're a Scotsman, and you know your father came here to the New World to get away from this kind of tyranny and oppression, this kind of social engineering, this kind of callous disposing of people, reorganize everything and the house always wins. Yes, you would speak up disproportionately and say, we must fight. You would not see taxes as just taxes. You would see taxes as part of a larger narrative, a larger attitude problem, a larger threat to your very existence. If your father or your grandfather had come to the colonies from Scotland after being driven out with so many others because the king and his favorites thought they knew better, you would rightly be thinking, there is no boundary. There is no limit. If they see and they think they can take, they will take. If we try to stop them, they will kill us. So we might as well arm up now. And this is why the Second Amendment is in the Bill of Rights. This is why the First Amendment is, yes, to be able to speak freely, to be able to question, to be able to challenge, to be able to disagree, to be able to call to repentance, essentially. And this is why the Second Amendment is the right to keep and bear arms. Because no sooner, if you aren't armed, no sooner have you called for repentance of the powers that be relative acts of cruelty, oppression, malice, selfishness, wickedness, and they will turn after trampling on your pearls and try to tear you to pieces. And so these Scots in particular knew well how these things progressed because they had just not all that long before been on the losing end of such a progression in Scotland. And it was bound to happen again. And what did they do? They fought. They fought and they won a country for themselves, the United States of America. And in our day, we have in Joe Biden, an Irish Catholic who, what? Figures he's got to get while the getting's good during his time as a public servant. He's got to get while the getting is good. Get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can. That's his vision of the good life. Decades in public office. He's passed it on to his son as well. His son is a total reprobate. His son alone is disqualifying. 
if you ask me, not because Joe Biden is guilty for his son's crimes, but if his son is a reflection of Joe Biden's character and actually for years and for decades has been stealing from the people of not just the United States of America, but from other countries, stealing, extorting, blackmailing with the full weight and force and power and authority and credibility of the United States government behind him. If someone said no, if someone wanted to raise the alarm, make an objection, complain, indict, investigate, prosecute, well, it's very unfortunate. Not a good representation of the Irish, nor of us as Americans, nor of us as Christians. It's interesting if you really think about the John Knox quote, and I'll read it again for you, or the quote from the political theory of John Knox by John R. Gray. In his dispute with Lethington in 1564, he concludes that subjects not only may, but also ought to, ought to withstand and resist their princes whensoever they do anything expressly repugning to God, his law or holy ordinance, end quote. The LGBTQ push qualifies, abortion qualifies, taking bribes qualifies, extortion qualifies. Enough is enough already. Or at what point will we be satisfied that he has dishonored himself and he has abused the trust that was placed on him to serve this people? At what point will we be satisfied that all those who aided and abetted him, who knew and said nothing, or who actively helped him, should be held accountable? At what point will we say that they cannot act on our behalf, either to write the laws, to execute the laws, or to interpret the laws, if they had any part in this? At what point will we be satisfied that this is the role of the Christian when the Christian is salt that has not lost its savor, I ask you, at what point will we take seriously what John Knox understood? Not only may we, we ought to withstand and resist this corruption. Not only do we have the liberty, we have the responsibility. And if we don't, well, again, history is a guide, sometimes a treasure map, other times a cautionary tale. Would we have what happened to the Scots who were driven out of their highland homes, driven off the land with their women and their children, in many of the darkest cases, watching their children and their wives brutalized by soldiers because first they, as people, had been dehumanized, portrayed as little to no better than animals. Why? Because they were gales, because they were Highlanders, uncivilized, brutish, supposedly, driven off, driven out. You can say, well, it all worked out in the end. That's no excuse for those who did the driving. And it's no reason to sit on our thumbs as others would do likewise to us and our wives and our children today. When we hear them talking the same way about us, reasoning the same way with regards to us, relating to us in the same ways that their forefathers related to our forefathers, we should expect that what comes next is they will try and do ultimately what their forefathers did to our forefathers or tried, hopefully unsuccessfully, in a recent enough case that we can still remember it and apply it. And we don't 
write the whole business off as irrelevant because, you know, times have changed. Yeah, people haven't. People have not. There is no new thing under the sun. Briefly, and I'll conclude with this for the purposes of this episode, in Numbers 36, 1 through 13, we have the question being raised, a reasonable question, a decent, respectful, respectable question. What is to be done with the land if these women marry men from other tribes? What will be done with the land? God's concern is not with dissolving the idea of family ties, dissolving the idea of clans, dissolving the idea of tribes within a nation, dissolving the idea of nations into something like a global community. No, no, there's not even a hint of that in what God commands in response to the question, which is fair. Let them marry whom they think best, only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. Every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father, so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. Do we have any notion whatsoever of preserving that here in the United States of America, or will we sit idly by while these corrupt tyrants rob not only our children's inheritance, our children's children's inheritance, but also seek to rob all the children of the world, all of the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the world of what would be their forefathers. Will we sit idly by or will we do justice? I hope we will abide by Micah 6.8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I've got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.